I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. Julie Zikafus is my guest today. She's the author of several books, including Saving Jemima, Life and Love with the Hard Luck Jay. She's a popular blogger and also an illustrator. Her paintings of birds, mammals, reptiles, and more have been featured in publications around the world. And she joins me today to talk about birds and blogging and more from her home in Ohio. Julie, thanks so much for joining me. I'm thrilled to be with you, Crystal. I, you know, I've gotten to know you a little bit over Facebook, and, and I'm just really thrilled to talk with you. Nature has been a part of your life, as you've written, you know, for as long as you can remember. Do you have a clear memory of the first time you found yourself just awed by the natural world? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure I was before, but I think it was like my lightning bolt moment was when I was eight. And um, I had always gone into this little five acre woodland behind my house in Richmond, Virginia. And um, I heard this little bird bathing. I heard that, you know, the flutter of wings and I just dropped to all fours and crawled through Catbriar, which is everywhere in Virginia. And uh, there was a little forest pool and there was a blue winged warbler bathing in it. It was probably April. And I was just astounded that something like this even existed, you know, an, an all yellow bright bird with a black bandit mask and just so tiny and so beautiful. And um, my parents were on it and they got me a field guide. I remember we bought it at a visitor center in Colonial Williamsburg, <laughs> and, like on a trip. I was like, mom, mom, can I have this? You know, so uh, so then they got me the National Geographic Book of Song and Garden Birds of Eastern North America. And I was just enchanted. And um, it had a little vinyl record in the back that I just about wore out playing the bird songs with Arthur Allen's voice and toning their names over them. So um, yeah, it was it, it the hook was set fast and early. And, um, you know, there were there were other moments, obviously, but that's the one that I remember that just catapulted me into the world of bird watching. And I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't even know people did it until I went to college and there was a club at Harvard and I was like, there's a club? People, <laughs> other people do this, you know? I was just, I was coming from such a blank slate and uh, and yet I had found the path by myself, which is pretty cool. That is cool. Did you did you know from an early age this, this is the kind of life's work that you wanted to do? Yeah, yeah, I did. I knew that I always wanted to draw. Um, I didn't really realize that, that I had this, something for writing um, until I got to high school and my beloved um, world lit and English teacher uh, Jean Saunders with whom I'm still in loving uh, contact um, you know I think she gave me an idea that that I had a gift for writing and didn't certainly didn't effuse about it but was obviously pleased with what I turned out and so kind of a seed was planted then that that I might write as well um, but I don't think it was until I got something published in Birdwatcher's Digest uh, in 1986 that it hit me that, you know, I might do this and combine writing and art and illustration, you know, as a profession. And you've also been blogging since 2005, which, and you're still doing that. And first of all, congratulations for being able to keep that going. <laughs> 
for so yeah, long. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, I'm kind of like Greyfriars Bobby, you know, I just go to the grave and lay down every day <laughs> for, the, for my entire life. You know, if, if I start something, I tend to just keep doing it. And so every once in a while, I have to take a step back and say, now, should you still be doing this after 35 years? <laughs> but um, yeah, blogging, blogging is something that, that I feel a need to do and that, that I love doing. And, and I have, you know, if you have an audience wanting to read what you want to write, but why wouldn't you do that? Right, right. Well, that's what that was going to be my question is like, so the blogs came along. And while you'd been writing and illustrating before then, how much of a world did that open up to other readers for you? And being able to interact um, to a degree? Yeah, that that's, that's a really interesting thing. Um, it opened up quite a world, you know, to, you write a book, and you might get an email or a letter that said, Oh, I just love your book, you know, but with blogging, you have this direct contact. And it's a wonderful education in the kinds of things that um, work in an online format and the kinds of things that will instantly get you into trouble and, um, you know, cause, cause all kinds of unnecessary discussion. And so <laughs> you learn how to clean up your stuff. You learn how to edit out the things that will upset people unnecessarily. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. you, you kind of learn how to scrub and polish for public consumption because with a blog, you do not know who's out there, um, but you can kind of guess and you can tune your stuff to that. And certainly all the best stuff you can't write about at all. <laughs> That's the frustration. <laughs> well, I kind of want to hear about the stuff that got you in trouble. To be honest. <laughs> well, well, any mention of Cats Outdoors, um, oh. any mention of that will set off a sub thread in the comments section of people who are, you know, ferociously defending um, keeping feral cat colonies going and things like that. So um, you have to just skirt things unless you want to take the bull by the horns and do a post like I did a post called Happy National Feral Cat Day. And it's it's still, you know, getting hundreds of hits, you know, 10, 12 years later. So yeah. it's pretty nuts. The other yeah. thing that I have loved reading your blogs over the years, I think I probably came in a year or two later. So I've been around for a while with you. Awesome. Um, is is watching, you know, you and your family just grow up and go through everything together. And mm -hmm. has that been a little weird for you at times? Um, it, it, I think it's probably been a little weird for the kids, um, you know, to have people come up and say, I just know everything about you. you know? <laughs> and they're like, Mom. <laughs> but um, I actually, I read a, I read a book by Anne Lamott when I was just a brand new mother called Operating Instructions. And it was fabulous. It was, it basically talked about feeling completely at sea with the newborn, which I think we all do, but she put it into such vivid terms. Um, later, she wrote another book and she featured her son in it quite prominently and um, their fights and their arguments and what she found exasperating about him. Well, it's all very well to do that with a newborn, but I read that book and I was like, that's what I'm not going to do to my kids. Hmm. It, it, it showed me what I didn't want to do because I thought, you know, here's this thing that stands as a monument to their relationship at that time. Does he necessarily want that written? So I got very careful and I would always vet the pictures or anything I was going to say with my kids before I would post it. 
And I still do that. They're in their 20s now. And I'm like, is this picture okay? You know, or would you prefer a different one? Or is it okay for me to say blah, blah, blah? Um, and I think that giving them the respect they are due uh, has been a really good path for all of us. Um, they enjoy their blog celebrity, um, but they, they, you know, they aren't embarrassed by the early stuff because I pretty much started regulating that with them from a very early age. Yeah, we've got, I mean, we've watched them grow up picture wise. I mean, do they get recognized even without you where they live? Um, that's a good question. I don't think so. I don't think okay. uh, Western North Carolina is really a Zikafu's hotbed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but uh, you know, maybe people don't come up to them. I remember a, a guy running up to me in a Target once. Are you Julie Zikafu's? And I was like, yes, and I'm shopping for dog clothes. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> you know, it was very strange. Um, but by and large, it doesn't happen. And, and uh, you know, masks make it even less likely. Oh, yeah. Those, yes, absolutely. Um, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going back to your blog, um, and this leads us a little bit more into into your writing and the books that you've written. One of your earliest blog entries, you wrote that knowing an individual bird is a powerful thing. And it seems like you've had that experience a lot over the years. Yeah, yeah. Actually, just, just before I ran inside to turn on my um, Zoom, for this interview, I was trying to hand catch a goldfinch I've been watching for um, probably three weeks or a month who is slowly going downhill, perhaps from salmonella. And uh, I really want to help him. And I think today is the day. I If I hadn't had to run inside, I would have had him. Um, and then I'll, well, no, it's okay. I'll get him. Uh, I'll get my butterfly net and I'll go out like Elmer Fudd and I'll, I'll be very quiet and I'll get him. Um, so, so yeah, individual birds enrich your life amazingly. And like, I have this sapsucker who was in her fourth year with me, a wild sapsucker who I kind of trained to eat all these weird different foods that she had no idea about. And I just treasure that bird. And when she shows up again in the winter, you know, they're only winter, winter uh, residents here. They, they breed farther north. And, um, when she shows up, I just like, I fall all over myself because I recognize her. And I like to think she recognizes me. She, she sits literally two feet from me in a tree right outside my studio window. It's so incredibly enriching to have these relationships with wild birds and to take the time to know them. And uh, just the simple fact of recognizing the same bird from month to month or year to year is so powerful. You've written about this a lot um, in your different books, your relationships, your experiences with different birds. You know, there's very amusing stories about umbrellas involved and um, <laughs> in, in barns and swallows and snakes and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. it, you know, writing about watching with and having these relationships, also there's a little bit of heartbreak that seems to come along with it. Yeah, yeah. I like to say if you want to get your heart broken, fall in love with a wild animal, um, any wild animal, be it deer or groundhog or skunk or bird, you know, they have short brutish lives and um, they often don't end well. And if you're that involved, sometimes you are in on the end of their lives, you know, you kind of witness that. And uh, I can say that that you do get a callus as a wildlife rehabber that grows over your heart and you don't weep uncontrollably when something dies, unless it's perhaps a young thing that you've raised. Um, that's really tough. But uh, you do get a callus and you and you 
you have to accept death as part of the life that you've chosen. So do you write every day? In some form, yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I have a journal by my bed, and if that's the only writing I do during the day, great, you know. But um, essays just come out of me, and sometimes I'll just get a hot idea and just run in and put it down while it's all fresh. And I'm so glad I do that because, you know, as a columnist, there's a constant drain on your, on your pool of resources. And, and it's so nice to, and then what I'll do is I'll, I'll put a prompt in my calendar for when that column might be due. And I'll go, go back to this document, you know, stored here. It's very rewarding both to journal and, and to blog, because I mean, sometimes when I'm out of ideas, I'll just go back in the blog for that time of year that I'm trying to write mm. about. And there something will be. And, you know, what, what an incredible resource to have an electronic and pictorial journal of your life since 2005. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I was, um, you know, getting ready for the interview. I was going back and kind of flipping through and doing, oh, Chet Baker and, you know, all of those oh, things. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's just, you know, since 2005, all of these entries, that must be amazing just to it, it is. And my kids go back. My son is very much a reminiscent kind of kid. And he, um, you know, he will he will take an evening and just go back and look at himself on the blog, himself and his sister and his little dog. Yeah. And his dad, you know, I mean, yeah. there it is. <laughs> you know? Yeah, He's, he, can, he can see him again. He can see videos and it's it's really sweet. I encourage people to blog, not because it's going to make you rich and famous, but because it's such a potent way to preserve your life. You are not only a writer, but you're also a stunning artist. Do the two go hand in hand for you? No, they kind of they walk alongside each other in a parallel way. Um I have this weird thing where I'm either in my right drawing brain um, or my left writing brain and the, the change of gears and the switch over can be awful. <laughs> it's like I'll go into painting jags and I'll paint and paint and paint and then I'll go, oh yeah, I used to write, right? Mm -hmm. hmm. How am I going to do that? And then, but the worst switch over, I can usually switch right into writing gear, but switching from writing gear to painting gear is always just a real clash for me. Um, so yeah, I just, I don't, I don't integrate the two very well. I've never illustrated a book where I'll write a chapter and then paint the picture to go with it. That really? doesn't happen. I want to talk about uh, Jemima. This is the Blue Jay that you raised, released, and like I said, eventually wrote this really amazing book about. When you got that call about this abandoned 11-day-old bluebird, Blue Jay, did you have any idea what this creature is going to do to you? Oh, you know, I had every intention of turning her over to a wildlife center. And um, because it was a really busy spring, it was May 16th, which is like, that's like everything happens for a bird watcher in mid-May. Um, travel, speaking engagements, all that stuff. And uh, I just couldn't do it. And yet, and yet I held her in my palm and I looked into her eyes and I was just like, nobody else is going to have this experience but me. You know, it was just, it was just instant. The bond was there and she was just so darn smart and aware. And I just thought, I gotta, I gotta save you. I gotta do this. You know, one of the things reading about Jemima and, and reading about other birds that you've written about is their intelligence. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredible. So it's there from that early of an age. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the neat thing in, in, doing the work for baby birds, which is my 13-year oeuvre in which I painted babies from hatching through fledging. Every day I would paint their portraits. 
I got this sense of who they were inside by working with these tiny infant birds every day. And I got to say, the ones that settled out as the most intelligent and aware of their surroundings were house sparrow and European starling, two of the birds we love most to hate. There's little wonder they're so successful in this country because man, from a very early age, those babies are looking around, assessing the situation, assessing the danger or the safety, and they're looking you in the eye and there's just like a blue jay, there's just something going on in those birds. And, uh, you know, you've got to respect that. They're amazing creatures. Do you have a favorite story about Jemima? Oh, boy. Well, yeah. I think, you know, one of the things, you know, she was very manipulative uh, and and always knew how to get what she wanted. And um, I had to, you know, there were people, of course, online are always second guessing you and they're like, you're making this bird into a pet. You're just doing this for fun. And yes, she was raised in our household with my kids um, actively interacting with her, but that was something that she directed. For instance, I had this big fledging tent out in the garage, which was a big nylon tent she could fly around and bathe, you know, hunt for mealworms in. And we'd put her out there and we'd go back an hour later and she'd be in exactly the same position on the same perch, just puffed up and moping. She didn't do well alone. And then she very quickly learned that once we put her out there, if she screamed as if she were being attacked, we would come rushing out and bring her into the house. <laughs> I know what, I'll fake a raccoon attack. <laughs> so, so she ran the show. And if we, if we left a room that Jemima was in, she'd fly down the hall after us. Um, there was little denying this bond and, um, after she was released, I have actually have a video of me stuffing her back out the window that she came in. Like, no, no, you have to be wild now. Goodbye. No, no, no. And slamming, slamming the window. Um, and on a super hot day, she'd come to the front door and scream. I'd open the door. She'd slip in and dive into Chet Baker's water bowl to take a nice soaking bath. Um, so, so there was this push and pull between me saying, you must be wild, you must be wild, and her saying, but I like it in there. I like it in there. <laughs> well, I recognize it safer in there. Right. And, and, you know, watching her think, the first bath that she took outdoors, I put a saucer of water down in the bushes for her, and she took her customary soaking bath where every feather was just bedraggled and she just looked like a lump. And she tried to fly up to a shrub and she couldn't make it. She darted under the shrub and hid. And I brought her inside because if her feathers are soaked and she can't fly, she could easily be killed. She never took another soaking bath outdoors. And that was why she came to the front door. She'd take a soaking bath, the kind she liked, and then she'd fly up to a kitchen chair, or clamber up. And, and dry for a couple of hours before she'd asked to go back outside. So that's the kind of cause and effect thought that Corvids are capable of and that I was only too happy to witness and record. I, I think anybody who's encountered Corvids has um, witnessed just a, a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, we we recently helped rescue a little a, a fledgling crow who had been hit by a car and just stunned, fortunately. Mm. And he still pops by to say hi. That's a beautiful story. And I've had that play out so many times. I had a hairy woodpecker female around here for years and she hit a window and was super stunned. And I picked her up and carried her to the crotch of a pine. I didn't want to bring her in the house. So I carried her to a really hidden spot and I just gently put her there and I checked on her and checked on her and then, you know, she was gone. And um, from that day on, I had to ask her to get off the peanut feeder so I could refill it. <laughs> it was like, oh, you're the one who picked me up. You're fine. You know, it's like, yeah. and she was fine. She was functional. She wasn't, you know, stunned or anything. That's just, she just lost her fear. And I had the same thing happen with a bluebird that I literally took out of the talons of a sharpshin hawk. After that, and I had to keep him for about a week until his puncture wounds healed and he could fly well. Um, but he always had a droop to his wing after that. But after that, if I was gardening near the birdbath, I was be weeding or something, he would come and bathe and the water would splash from him to me and get me wet because it was like, I'm going to bathe while the lady's here, you know, <laughs> because that's a vulnerable time and she's the one, she can get me out of whatever, you know, it was incredible. And maybe I'm misinterpreting, but for a bird to bathe with you right there, that means they really trust you. Yeah, they're not concerned about you at all. Yeah, they're, you know, and they're actually seeking you out. Yeah, it's nuts. nuts. Is there, is there anything like science wise that proves this kind of intelligence or that can explain, you know, because you see videos online of, oh, I started putting peanuts out. And now the bird's knocking on my window if there's not food. Oh, out. Yeah, and yeah, you yeah. see this all yeah. the time, right? You do. Um, you see it all the time. And, you know, the problem with my kind of quote unquote science is it's all anecdotal. Hmm. And, um, you know, I'm not doing experiments. I'm not coming up with numbers. I'm just making observations. And if you're careful enough about the way you make your observations and you allow the reader to decide for themselves what happened, um, you can gain a, a bit of credibility, you know. But I have to say that science is in the tiny baby step crawling stage of understanding a, the avian intellect. You know, we're still quantifying personalities in fruit flies, barely prepared for birds. And, you know, you go, you, all you have to do is spend a little time on YouTube watching cockatoos dancing perfectly to the beat of music yes. and screaming at exactly the right moment. You know, this is nothing anybody teaches them to do. They're just doing it. Every day, birds do things that, that humans are not only incapable of, but that astonish us. And we have to be open to be astonished by them, even the most common, you know, the house sparrow or the starling, because they are all insanely intelligent creatures. I want to go back to, um, to the book Saving Jemima. Anybody who's read this, I don't want to spoil the book for people who haven't read it. But the end of the book kind of wrecks you as a reader. Yeah. And I yeah. know going through it wrecked you as well. Um, but as a writer, I'm curious, how do you get through all of that and get it down onto the page? Writing the difficult passages of Saving Jemima were, was every bit as difficult as you might think it would be. Um, I go through a lot of drafts. Normally, I'm a one draft writer, you know, I might polish it up a bit, but it kind of comes out the way I want it. But as far as anytime you get other people involved in a story you're telling, 
it gets complicated really fast if it's true. And um, that was that was insanely difficult to write my sub story into the bird's story. Mm. Uh, and yet I couldn't I couldn't help the reader understand how important Jemima was unless they knew the context behind why she was so important. So I I had to walk through that fire. I had to do it. And it's pretty exhilarating to finally get a draft that you think is powerful, but won't mortally offend anyone. <laughs> okay. Uh, but like sense. I say, you know, all the best stuff you can't write about, all the all the juiciest stuff and, you know, the hardest stuff. It's just like, nope, nope, not going to do it. Have you seen Jemima since the last time you wrote about her in the book, the maybe Jemima, maybe Maybelline? I have not. Okay. I have not seen hide nor hair. And the, the last absolutely certain sighting was December 24, 2018. That was when I was absolutely sure uh, that it was Jem. I, I've never been sure. And actually, um, yeah, I, I won't spoil it, but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure the maybe Jemima was the maybe Jemima, but it sure made us feel good there for a minute. And that's okay, right? And that's okay. Yeah, exactly. That bird served its purpose and then moved on. And, uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I have to be grateful that it happened at all, that I had seven months with an incredible being who taught me so much and taught me how to let go, you know, yeah. that was what, that was what I needed to know most of all was how to let go of everything and be okay by myself. I, I think that one of the things I love most about your writing is when you write about those moments where you're like, you know, your dad is saying hi or, or something yeah. is happening. And it, it feels like Jemima just came along at the right time, like you said, for a purpose, you know, not just for you, but maybe for your whole family. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes, absolutely. I mean, my daughter needed her as badly as I did. My son needed her. We, we all needed her. Um, and she was ex just exactly what we needed. Um, she gave me something to focus on. She had basically a problem a day that I had to solve. And, uh, you know, came up with all kinds of weird, crazy disease related stuff. And, you know, that's my wheelhouse. <laughs> so, you know, just keeping that bird alive and functioning and going back to the wild and watching her blossom into this beautiful wild creature was, was you know, it was our born free uh, experience. It was what we needed. And you are going to do a reading for us, I believe. So this is uh, chapter two in Crystal. You you requested that I read this one. It's called Facebook Waif. So I'm, I start out by describing what my life was like just immediately pre-Jemima. The next year went by like a hurtling train with me selling, signing, boxing, and sending nearly a thousand copies of baby birds out of my studio and promoting it in 23 speaking engagements around the country. Natural history authors like me aren't sent on all expense paid book tours. In the publishing industry, we're considered niche writers with a comparatively narrow audience. I negotiate book speaking engagements and drive myself there, having bought the books I sign and sell after each talk. I wind up loading many 36 pound boxes of them in and out of my car with no roadies in sight. I'm usually my own tech support, setting up and troubleshooting the projector and PA system for my shows at fellowship halls, hotels, and conference centers. 
I've spoken in university lecture rooms and hotel ballrooms, galvanized sheds and festival tents decked with straw bale seating. I produce and mat my own art prints, sell note cards, and even a jigsaw puzzle with my art on it, along with the four books I've written to date. It's a load, a roadshow. It's my life. The spring of 2017 was jammed with travel from Florida to Virginia to California, back to West Virginia, with Ohio engagements sprinkled throughout. I was moving a lot of books, sustaining a year-long effort, but I was tired, soul-tired. I kept reminding myself that giving talks and selling books was as vital a part of my work as writing and painting. But there was a growing ache in my creative heart. I missed being home. I needed to get back to my true work. I was worried about my daughter, Phoebe, who was overextended in a grueling spring semester as an earth and oceanographic science major at Bowdoin College. I could hear in her voice that she was hanging by her nails, navigating the choppy waters of her first relationship breakup, even as she powered through final exams. I was fighting battles of my own, buffeted by losses that came in waves as regular as the seas. Phoebe's breakup hit me like a train. It felt for all the world as if I'd adopted a beloved son and had to give him back. My reliable furry support system needed support of his own. I was dancing the senior dog waltz with my beloved Chet Baker, a Boston Terrier who at 12 was running out of heart and spirit. I was surviving, but feeling lonely and unsupported. While I was preparing to become a Mother Jay in 2016, I applied for and received a scientific collecting permit from the state of Ohio and the US Fish and Wildlife Service. This would replace the wildlife rehabilitation and salvage permit I'd held since 1992. Both allowed me to work with songbirds and their nestlings. The key difference between them was that the scientific permit allowed me a little privacy. A requirement for holding a wildlife rehab permit was having your home telephone number publicly listed. The resulting calls from all over Ohio about everything from orphan fawns to box turtles, bats, and baby birds had reduced me to cringing every time the phone rang. As a lone rehabilitator without veterinary backup or elaborate housing, I was in no position to take in even a tiny percentage of the orphan and injured wildlife concerned. But I spent a lot of time advising, referring, and facilitating the care and transfer of these broken, lost creatures. In fall and winter, when baby bird fall calls finally ceased, busted up hawks and owls took their place. These I found the most challenging and dispiriting because nothing good happens when a speeding car meets a flying raptor. All I could do was tell people how to handle and feed them, take some in for temporary care, and try to arrange transport for all of them to the Ohio Wildlife Center, the state's largest wildlife rehabilitation organization, two and a half hours away. So it was a relief to have the phone fall blessedly silent when my rehabilitation permit expired and my name was taken off the public rehab lists, but it was a short-lived piece. Social media abhors a vacuum. I can't escape the barrage of Facebook messages pleading for help with baby birds. People merrily tag me in their friends' posts as the baby bird factotum without a thought to the ripple effect set in motion. They're delighted with a few keystrokes to present a real live expert to a friend who's just found a baby bird. They're done. It's then left to me to respond in detail to dozens of queries that all start with, I found a baby bird and what do I do? The resulting exchanges can go on for hours and often days or weeks. Multiply that by the number of inquiries that roll in and it doesn't take long to get overwhelmed. The pickle I'm in is real. I depend on social media to promote my work, my speaking engagements, my books. My blog, Facebook, and Instagram have become the powerful advertising right arm of my business, 
one whose message I can control and direct. I need to maintain an online presence to promote and sell my books, but along with that convenience and outreach comes access. The real hazard of Facebook, and to a lesser extent, Instagram, is two-pronged. First is the instantaneous ease which with, with which thousands of people can access each other and me. Second, and far deadlier, is the visual element. It's one thing to get a phone call about a lost baby bird. It's quite another to get a photo or video of it. That's okay when the bird is in Seattle. There's no way it's going to become my problem to care for. When the bird is nearby, and I know there's no one else within a two-hour drive who will help, I'm sunk. It's a dart to the heart when I'm helpless to deflect or resist. It was exactly one year to the day from when I'd been crawling around under the Japanese maple and found a jay egg lying in the grass, May 16, 2017, that I got a Facebook message that would change everything. Shauna Linscott from Marietta, Marietta, Ohio, had found a baby blue jay in the middle of the street. Hello, Julie, this is Shauna Linscott from Marietta. In the past, you've helped me with a turtle and a bird. This little fella has been on the ground outside of my daughter's school since 9.30 this morning. It appears it has not moved from under the bush where I placed it. As I approached to get this photo, it was opening its mouth for food, so I have no idea if the mother has returned to feed. My question to you is, do I leave it or do I take it home? A photo of a jay, perhaps 11 days old, its eyes dull and sunken with dehydration, drew a gasp from me. Quickly, I typed, look up in the tree and trees nearby for a twiggy nest. Are there jays yelling at you? If they're yelling at you, they're aware of it. It doesn't look good, though. It's too young to be out of the nest. Ideally, you return it to the nest. I know that isn't always possible. It hasn't moved because it's really too young to go anywhere. Cat food or soaked kitten chow is a good food. Needs nourishment and liquids. Ultimately, if it can't be returned to the nest, it should go to Columbus. I'm driving up on the 20th and could take it. Shauna responded, no jays that I've seen, only robins. Did not see a nest. As far as liquids, do I just give water? And how often do I need to give liquids and food? I'll get a cat carrier and return and get it. I will do everything I can to help this little fella. And yes, if you could take it to Columbus on the 20th, that would be great. I scrutinized the photo. The bird was in trouble, as any baby bird who'd gone for without food all day would be. It didn't look good. I couldn't tell Shauna how to save this little life. There's some things you have to do yourself. I got up, paced around in a circle, took a deep breath and typed, you might want to bring it to me, Shauna. Jays are difficult. Need to be fed at least once an hour. Water's okay in small amounts. Better just bring it to me. At that point, I was thinking I'd feed it for a few days and relinquish it to the Ohio Wildlife Center when I drove up to Columbus to pick up Phoebe for a three-week summer break at home. I no longer was the woman who, a year ago, fell under the spell of a mystical green egg and thought she wanted to hatch and raise a blue jay. I had things to do, places to go, changes coming in my life that were taking my full attention. I wasn't up for a several-month commitment to a needy bundle of fluff. I instructed Shauna to feed it as much scrambled egg as it would eat before loading it in the carrier and taking it to the Birdwatcher's Digest office so my husband Bill could bring it home to me. I mixed some powdered nesting, nestling formula with water and went to the basement to get the two plastic shoeboxes that held my live mealworm culture. Yes, I keep live mealworms going in the basement for just such emergencies. Two days earlier, a bizarre urge had come over to me to clean the mealworms, a disgusting job that involves sieving them in a stiff breeze and often getting covered with frass. After 35 years of raising and handling mealworms, I've developed an allergy to them, so I dislike this necessary ritual. I smiled as I picked up the immaculate bins of clean, well-fed mealworms and wondered at the coincidence. 
When Bill arrived, I opened the carrier and picked up the young Jay. It was virtually tailless, a compact, stub-winged gray bundle trimmed in military blue and white. It fit neatly in my palm, and it was absolutely charming, as these cobby little avian prototypes tend to be. But I sensed I had my work cut out for me with this bird. It was dehydrated and down in the parlance of avian rehabilitators, and in fact, it kept its eyes closed for most of the first three days I had it. It would gape for food with vigor only first thing in the morning. I had to force feed it the rest of the time. I knew Jays to be vigorous beggars and enthusiastic eaters and sensed there was something off. On the third day, its droppings turned an alarming shade of sea green. Not sure what that was about, but feeling it was nothing good. I started it on Batril, hoping that whatever was bugging it might be knocked out by this wide spectrum antibiotic. I refrained from naming it, telling myself that I was waiting for Phoebe to pronounce on its sex and choose a name. She'd proven a fey prognosticator of the sex of many baby birds, but mostly I was afraid this little bird wouldn't make it. With Batril, the bird brightened and kept its eyes open more. Its droppings normalized and it showed a little more interest in food. Each morning it was a bit livelier when it greeted me and the sound of keening hunger calls gladdened my heart. It began to clamber around and preen, always a good sign of well-being in birds. I retrofitted a painted wicker Easter basket with strips of soft toweling along the edge and paper towels in the center. It made a fine nest, dropping catcher and carrier for the little jay, who soon learned to flutter climb atop the handle for a better look at its world, which at this point was my kitchen. Being fairly heavy birds, blue jays given only hard perching surfaces are prone to pressure sores on their feet. These can provide an entry point for a staph bacterium that causes a fatal disease called bumblefoot. Needless to say, I quickly padded its favorite perches in plush cloth. May 20, the day I'd planned to take it to the Ohio Wildlife Center, came and went. I'd fallen for its winsome personality, for the challenge of bringing it back to health and releasability. I wanted to be the one to see it through release. And with that decision, my transformation back into the egg-contemplating madwoman was complete. Bill and Liam made the two-hour drive to nab Phoebe at the airport. I had a new mission to stay home and take care of this baby blue jay. I knew from our phone conversations that Phoebe was riding a ragged emotional edge and had been for weeks. She'd worked too hard, proving to herself and the world that multivariate calculus would not be her academic Waterloo. She'd been staying up far too late and worrying too much. She'd navigated a heartbreakingly difficult and complicated breakup without having the time or mental space to process what had taken place. I was braced to receive her. I'd cleaned the house, washed her bedding, and hung it out in the fresh air, laid in all her favorite foods, and planned meals intended to make her swoon with delight. Chicken pot pie, roast beef with gravy and green beans, carnitas, three cheese ravioli sautéed in sage, homegrown salads. For the next three weeks, I was planning to feed her, listen to her, and let her sleep until noon, if that was what she wanted. She was all grown up, but she was still mine to care for, and I meant to care for her. She'd get mama's medicine in every home-cooked meal in every undisturbed hour of peaceful sleep. Even with advance warning, I still wasn't ready for the hollow-eyed ghost of my daughter who stumbled in the door, tears already carrying mascara into her freckles. I held her as she wept with joy and relief, and when her slender ribcage was no longer heaving, I turned to open the jay's carrier. Though it was late at night, I took the small gray baby on my finger and gently transferred it to hers. She raised it to her face and buried her nose in its soft feathers, breathing in its woodsy scent. 
She bent her head and laid her cheek against the bird's back, smiling through her tears. You always have a friend for me when I come home. I shrugged, wiped my own tears, and wrapped my arms around them both. I had yet to name the bird, and I had a guess at its sex, but I wanted to see what Phoebe thought. The next day, we all convened at the kitchen table to name the jay. The scent of blueberry pancakes and maple syrup still hung in the air. I'd cut a big bouquet of irises, white with lilac ruffles, which dominated the table with their beauty and grapey fragrance. Iris, Phoebe said. I think it's a female, and I want to name her Iris. There were murmurs around the table. I like Iris, and I can concur on its sex. I think it's a female, too. But I was kind of thinking about a name that started with J, I said. We ran through some names beginning with J, until Bill, who had, after all, named our Boston Terrier after Jet, jazz artist Chet Baker said, I think we should call her Jemima. Jemima Iris J. The name had sprung right off the breakfast table. It was a relief to have something to call the wee thing, to frame our affection for her with a name and a guess at her sex. In fact, there is no reliable way to tell male blue jays from female. They appear identical to human eyes. Surely jays have ways to instantly tell each other's sex. There must be behavioral, vocal, and plumage clues hidden to us that blue jays can perceive. Are the ultraviolet shades in their blue plumage different to their sensitive eyes? Maybe there's a code in the soft conversational calls that pass between them when they're together. Or perhaps there's a method by which they determine each other's sex that's undreamt of by mere humans. There was so much I wondered about blue jays. The more I work with birds, the more I believe in the undreamt, the things we are not given to know. Julie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This is so fun. I, I, can, you do, can we do this again? We can. Absolutely. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you can find out more about Julie Zikafus on our website. We've got links to her books and blogs and more. That's at wskg.org. And if you listen to the podcast version of today's show, you can listen to Julie reading from her book, Saving Jemima, Life and Love with the Hard Luck Jay. Coming up on our next episode, I talk with Professor Anne Bailey. She's the author of The Weeping Time, Memory and the Largest Slave Auction in American History. It's a fascinating conversation about the erasure of a very important and very uncomfortable part of our country's past. It also takes a look at the role that memory and history plays in healing. I learned a lot, and I hope you will too. You can listen to Off the Page anytime you want. You'll find all of the episodes on our website, or you can subscribe to the podcast, which features longer interviews with many of our authors. Find out more on our website at wskg.org. And if you've got some feedback about the program, I'd love to hear from you. Just email page at wskg.org. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sorakis, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we go off the page. <laughs> <laughs>